0: Hello and welcome back to season six of Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Isaac Asimov's The Original Foundation trilogy, including Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and Second Foundation. This is season six, episode one The Psychohistorians and the Encyclopedists, covering parts one and two of the first book of the trilogy, Foundation. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge on this book in this series. My name is Dan. I have listened to the first book, Foundation. Um, but I have not read anything else past that. As to the background on myself, I'm not a very prolific reader, but as of, uh, evidenced by our podcast earlier seasons, I've been really into the Remembrance of Earth's Past series by Liz Shin and read other series like Game of Thrones and other things, but I don't normally read that much.
1: My name is Talia. I have been interested in science fiction in short story form and then longer form for a while, and so obviously Asimov was so intriguing. I knew I was going to read him. He was next on my list. And only 11 years later, I finally am uh, for the first time. So I've never read anything by Isaac Asimov, but I know he's sometimes dubbed like the granddaddy of science fiction. And I know he has a lot of influence on other authors like Ursula K. Le Guin and Liu Sushin, who Dan just mentioned. So I'm excited to see if he lives up to what I've heard about him and in preparation for this podcast, I read the reading that you can find on the website, but I have not finished the series or even finished the book. Before this recording,
2: my name is Priya, and I am a pretty avid sci-fi reader. Back in college, I read; I took a whole sci-fi class, so I got exposed to a lot of um, a lot of different um, sci-fi readers through that. And um, recently, I've been reading more sci-fi, and I was really excited to read this book by Asimov because I I did read one other um, work by him, uh, I Robot, which everyone knows, and I really love that. So I'm excited to um, sort of delve into this. I, And I've only read the first two parts of this book so far, which we're covering this podcast. So I have no other knowledge of the books.
0: Cool. Uh, Well, yeah, just talk a little bit more about the structure of this podcast. So we are... Just like the last the Remembers of Earth Past series, we're only going to spoil up to the current reading and then anything previous to that. But we won't be spoiling anything past that. Mostly because we don't know. <laughs> uh, we haven't read it ourselves. I, you know, I know a little bit about the first book, but I don't know anything about the rest of them. So the intention is for you to go for all the listeners to look at the reading list that's on our website uh, and kind of read along with us as for how we split it up per episode. Again, we're only covering the first three books in this season. And by the first three books, I mean the first three books that were written in chronological order, like in the order they were released.
1: Yeah. If people people don't know about Asimov and the Foundation series, it was actually quite prolific. And he began writing in the 1940s and wrote like for the next lifetime. So there's a couple different orders to read it in, but for the structure of this show, we're going to read it in the order that they came from the author so in the order they were written
0: right right yeah because the the timeline gets a little messy with like prequels and then the even the iRobot series apparently is, is gets stuck into the the time the canonical timeline so it's really just the first three books so foundation which was written in 1951 foundation and Empire was 1952 and then second foundation in 1953 so I mean those are them are at least or that's the dates I found I know like foundation itself was kind of uh, put into magazines and kind of done piecemeal but that's the the date that was, that was there.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of science fiction owes its current structure to these early authors like Asimov because a lot of the science fiction I mentioned I listened to or read was in short form is because they wouldn't really have the audience or didn't predict they'd have the audience for a full-length book. So a lot of science fiction was released either episodically or in hyper-short novella forms in magazines and then sometimes those later became the full books that we have
0: now and another note around the series uh, i know there's a tv show that's going to be on apple tv plus that's coming out in soon in september ish i don't know what what part of the books or series is going to be covering or if it's going to be like doing one book per per season or anything so I am not planning on watching it or covering it as part of this podcast, at least for this season, maybe in future seasons, once we finish the entire series. But I'm really spoiler averse, so uh, I don't want to watch it and get spoiled on something that I, I haven't read yet. So the this podcast won't be covering um, the TV show itself. I'm going to jump into doing the summary for this episode. So every episode, I will collect what happened and kind of go over it as a jumping off point for our discussion. So We start out with uh, Gal Dornick making his first trip ever to Trantor, a planet at the center of the empire that has been turned into an enormous city with no self-sustaining agriculture. He is there to meet with Harry Selden to work on a mysterious project. The project is made even more mysterious when Selden's reputation as a raven that portends doom is revealed ahead of his meeting with the man himself. Selden appears in Dornick's hotel room and confirms that he does foresee doom but not on intuition, but based on a complex mathematical formula that is developed that could predict events into the far future that he calls psychohistory. These predictions do not sit well with the empire, as they put both Selden and Dornick on trial and are questioned about Selden's predictions and intentions. Selden says psychohistory predicts not only the destruction of Trantor, but the fall of the empire itself. Seldon proposes that the chaotic era following the fall of the empire can be reduced from 30,000 years to just 1,000 years if they allow him to form a group that would compile the sum of knowledge into a single volume, or maybe multiple volumes. The advocate is skeptical, but ultimately agrees to let Seldon form his group, exiled to, remote, to a remote planet named Terminus. This appears to be a setback, but according to Selden, it was all within its predictions. Fifty years later, on Terminus, work has continued on Encyclopedia Galactica, with the Board of Trustees holding the real power on the planet. Meanwhile, its first mayor, Salvor Hardin, pleads with the council to take action regarding the recent takeover of the sector by Anacreon, leaving the planet without access to any resources. The board is hesitant to get involved with politics and instead wants to focus on its work. They receive the sub-prefect of Anacreon to gauge their intentions. Anacreon intends the tax terminus despite its lack of ability to pay taxes and their status as directly appointed by the emperor. Since there are no resources, the subprefect instead agrees that they give up land on the planet instead. The conversation is stalled when it's insinuated that the planet possesses nuclear weapons, while the knowledge of nuclear power has been long forgotten by most others in the galaxies, including the Empire. Lord Dorwin, a representative of the Empire, arrives to make an arrangement with Anacreon, but after it's ratified, it's found that it's essentially toothless and cedes all power to Anacreon. The board is still hesitant to take on any political action, and Mayor Hardin plans a coup to seize power of the planet. The board instead waits for the anticipated message from Seldon himself that is to come on the 50th anniversary of the founding of the foundation. Seldon's message does appear and informs them that the entire mission of the encyclopedia has been a fraud. He says that the foundation will face a series of crises to which there is only one inevitable path, ultimately leading to the fall of the stagnating empire and founding of the second empire by the foundation. Hardin is given control of Terminus and asks what the next move is, to which he replies, it's obvious as hell. (laughs) So normally I read the characters, but does someone else want to do it? I talk a lot in these things.
1: (laughs) I don't know how any of them are pronounced, but I'll take it.
0: You know, it's interesting that like, the, I think these characters are harder to pronounce than any of the Liu shin ones because like even even though they're all in Chinese like <laughs> I think these are harder because like they have no basis in, in English or you know, have some basis in English but not you know I my, my remedial Chinese was able to get me through a lot of the remembers sort of the past but these are you more, seem more to difficult. have
2: like very little basis in reality I think that's the problem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> perfect so no one can
1: correct me so a lot of characters are introduced so we'd like to level set by repeating them here with Short descriptions. Harry Selden, the founder of Psychohistory. Gail Dornick, a mathematics PhD who takes a job working for the Selden project. Gerald, who meets Gail on the observation deck, actually an agent of the Commission on Public Safety. Loris Avakin, Gail's lawyer. Lynch Chen, chief commissioner of public safety and judge of Selden's trial. Louis Perrien, Chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Foundation of the Encyclopedia Galactica on Terminus. Salver Hardin, the first mayor of Terminus City. Anselm Hot foddick the subprefect of Pluma and envoy extraordinary of His Highness of Anacreon. Lord Dorwin, a nobleman of the Galactic Empire who arrives on Terminus as a representative of the Emperor.
0: Um, so the first thing I want to just talk about just to kind of a meta discussion around the book is like how everyone's reading it. So my experience with quote unquote reading this book is I took a long road trip over the summer and I was like, well, you know, people talk about foundation. So I, I got the the audiobook, which was really like a really old, it was like a recording of an old cassette or something. It sounded like from the sixties or seventies or something like that, but quality was really bad. And the audio, the narrator was very monotone. He tried to do some voices every so often, but anyway, I, I, I kind of, I that's, i thought the concepts were interesting but i was like kind of tuning in and out of it but it's like the overall concepts of the the book were interesting enough to want to continue on it but then i when i started this project i read it instead um on an ebook which is normally how i do it i found it to be way better like the experience of reading this book versus listening to this book because i'm maybe because when i'm focusing on it uh just paying more attention rather than just zoning out when i'm driving on you know in the middle of nowhere uh it's i just find it way better so i'm just interested what your guys experience and actually how, how you're actually reading these books
2: so, I am reading it on ebook right now, and um, I'm glad I didn't even bother trying to get an audiobook based on your experience, <laughs> Dan, because that really, really kills a book for me when the narrator is like boring or monotonous. But I've been telling you that um, I recently listened to Andy Weir's um, new book, Project Hail Mary, on um, audiobook, and that is like absolutely amazing. And I can't imagine reading it, you know, without the audio sound effect it's almost like a performance so if it's Mm. like that that would work but I can imagine this book getting extremely difficult if it's on with with a bad narrator so
0: I know there is a radio dramatization of this book I haven't listened to it but I know it exists I wonder I wonder if it's bad. I I specifically didn't choose it because I wanted to get like the the I didn't want to like I want to get the text like I wanted to like have the experience of reading it without reading it but I know it exists
2: Except when you get to Dorwin's parts, it becomes very difficult. I mean, in those parts, I wish I had somebody reading it to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I was, I was thinking, like, well, maybe I should have gone back and listened to, like, that part from the audio. We'll get to that, but...
2: Did, did that yeah. narrator do a voice for Dorwin, at least? <laughs>
0: I can't remember, but I I think he might have.
1: The only sound to break the short silence that followed was the clicking of the lid of Lord Dorwin's snuffbox. And then he put it away and said, A great achievement, this encyclopedia of yours, Harden." A feat indeed to rank with
2: the most majestic accomplishments of all time.
1: That's where I can come in as someone who has listened or listened to part of the BBC radio. I assume Mm -hmm. that's the same interpretation. I don't know if there's been more than one radio play. Yeah, that's what
0: I was thinking of. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, yes, they do do all the voices. But um, in terms of how I'm consuming this media if you listen to the last season of rehydrate i was a co-host for the spoiler cast for the remembrance of earth's past series and since recording that or since beginning that and beginning this season i have moved to new york city and as a result of that i have a lot more time sitting on the subway and (laughs) i have chosen to spend some of that time reading a paperback copy that I have uh, or rather that I took from my father who was a bit of a science fiction nut back in the day and thus has this vintage copy which is really good for me. It's paperback so it's really small uh, compared to the three body books which are all like very bulky. Um, This one fits really easily and I'm able to steal away even just a couple minutes i think it's pretty digestible and i think it's very dynamic and fun to read although i do alternate with the bbc radio play i think it's enjoyable and it definitely helps my comprehension to hear it twice but i'll have to check when it was recorded because it feels like the audio mixing is just bananas in between the scene changes they play like and i grew up partially in the uk watching like the old school doctor who And it reminds me of those sound effects, like in between scenes, there's like a wee you, wee And it sort of like (laughs) makes me laugh when I should be focusing and it's mixed a little too loud. So you can't really focus on the characters because it's deafening to your eardrums, but it's sweet and I still recommend it.
0: So is it like a straight like retelling of the story or do they actually like move like story parts around?
1: No, it's not a straight retelling. There's artistic license. So it may have spoilers, Dan. So maybe you should. I know. That's what I was worried about. Exactly. I know.
0: (laughs) We've already mentioned this series a bunch of times, but we just got finished with reading the Remembrance Earth Past series or podcasting about it. And that's how the three of us met was talking about that. So get ready for a lot of references to that (laughs) on this podcast. Uh, We'll try not to give any spoilers. Uh, if you hadn't haven't read it yet, but there will be a lot of references to it, I'd imagine. So one of the first things I want to bring up is kind of the contrast and style between that series and and this series. So when I read it, I immediately noticed the contrast and style. So Lisa Shin is you know famously a very hardcore science fiction writer and his books are very dense at points. And you know, you have to go through a lot of technical explanation. I I think this book is a lot more world building. And it just felt like an easier read to me. Like it just like it kind of flowed easier to read. Was that your guys experience too?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I think there are I, I tend to see Liu uh, Cixin's writing as, like, um, it's it's very different in some parts than it is in others. Like, there are some parts where um, he also focuses a lot on the the human element and the character-driven elements that make good sci-fi. And I think without that, the, the trilogy would not be what it is. But um, there are, I think, Asimov is more digestible to someone who isn't very much into like hard science, but Mm. wants to explore like the overarching themes of like sci-fi and science, like, like the cool parts of science, you know, like it definitely feels like it's more of like, um, an exploration of, of humanity and, um, humanity, like a humanity driven exploration of a distant future to me. That's what it, reads as and it's it's a little more quirky and to me it seems of course because of the time period in which it was written a little borderline campy but i don't hate mm. that so
0: yeah and it seems to focus a lot on the politics of the far future right too which i thought was really really interesting i always love those you know that's that's the most interesting part of the the song of ice and fire series is all the, pol- the, the politics of, of westeros right so this is like the politics of the galactic empire or whatever they call it <laughs> so i think that stuff is also super interesting like the interplay between uh, uh, terminus and anacreon and the Empire and like how they th- they weren't able to ratify any kind of meaningful kind of treaty uh, all that's all those interplays I think are super interesting to me
2: it's also interesting how it seems almost like a very archaic system in in some ways because you have like empires and emperors and like um it doesn't seem like what you would expect from a futuristic world um so that just the way that it reads is 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 interesting and the politics seems antiquated but you're like thousands of years into the future
0: yeah i mean it's possible that was a deliberate decision right cuz like they're trying to show the kind of fall and the stagnation of that empire mm-hmm. uh, being predicted you know right. similar like, to like the
1: evolution. same thing yeah
0: yeah, similar to like Rome or something, right? In the, like the late stages of Rome, how they had an emperor and that that was you know stagnating and falling and eventually did. So I think that's probably parallels there. And then the foundation is probably more science. They probably want to fa- found the, the the new second empire based on science, right? And and that kind of thing. So they, I think that's probably probably intentional. How about totally? How do you think? What did you think of uh, the difference in styles?
1: I really liked Priya's assessment um, because it seems so grand. I noticed things I think on a smaller scale as we were going through the summary. For me, I think it was maybe fifty pages into the book where I got my first aha moment. It -hmm. was like the the first turn was being exiled to Terminus, and then them sort of like cheering and rallying, like "Yes, we were right. (laughs) We got the right place," and that sort of built my trust in the narrative. And I was like, oh, I guess you know this can be predicted and this is a fun place to go. And I think the next turn also happened in the first part of our reading where in fact the entire project that we've sunk all of our hopes and politics into, that's also a scam. We're not actually (laughs) here on the edge of the empire um, to build an encyclopedia. So I think those two things really pushed the narrative forward for me because both of those happened before we hit, you know, a hundred pages. So for me, it moved very, in a very lively manner where, you know, my thoughts on the three body problem, I think you could pretty much skip the first 80 pages. So that was my, (laughs) that was my opinion.
2: It gives me hope to know that it just gets better because... <laughs> I was um, struggling a little bit with the with the political dialogue of this, um, but another observation that I had was um, the Encyclopedia Galactica excerpts immediately reminded me of um, the excerpts of uh, past outside of time that are interspersed through Death's End, and it almost made me wonder if like Lucien was kind of emulating that particular style I, I it's not like a new style or anything but like it just read very similarly to me probably because i just recently read death sign
0: right. <laughs> yeah 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 like the the excerpts from the book that was written in the future right that are now contemporaneous <laughs> talking about like the events that are happening yeah that, i would be very surprised that there wasn't at least in the back of his mind you know sort of i uh, think
1: it, it's just yeah. a it's a tool that works like I love reading the Dune series and finding like oh here's a Benny Gesserit journal like happens to thematically resonate with the next part you know
0: yeah yeah I think I mentioned this on some other episode too but Watchmen also have similar stuff where at the end of every episode or every comic they have that kind of more world building contemporaneous like news articles or you know some kind of biography or that kind of thing so I think one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading this is like I'm gonna. I see a lot of like what I think is like references, but actually, this might have like pioneered them, right? Like this is written six or seventy years ago now, right? So like these might have the the this might have been the first actual like the the first the first kind of implementation of that kind of structure. Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't read much sci-fi previous to this I so like we need i we not our know readers
1: he... <laughs> to educate us because we're yeah, yeah in the dark
0: <laughs> yeah so i think we kind of alluded to this uh you know they're talking a little bit but let's, let's actually get into the this book a little bit and i thought like just the sense of world immersion i thought was really great for for this section and like again like when i was well, listening to an audiobook i didn't really get it but like as i was reading it, like even like the first couple of chapters were like uh dornick is going through Uh, you know, just traveling to to Trantor and taking the taxi and going on the observation deck, like all that stuff was was really good and really kind of helped build the world up. I thought.
1: Oh, me too. I thought that was so real. Like you're a little nervous in the taxi, and then the hotel concierge is a little bit snippy with you, and of course that resonates a thousand years in the future. I thought it was
0: really effective. And all the people are kind of like not kind of rude, but they're just like everything's just t- taken for granted like standoffish
1: like, oh. or something yeah
0: yeah they're like ah you, need, you need these rubes coming from the the sticks right like just just <laughs> t- it's take the taxi it's fine right <laughs> I, I don't know if i going to get into it later but the the one thing that did i did not fully appreciate i think about, about the world immersion was the affected speech of uh lord dorwin you know it was interesting for a little while but after a while it's like really hard to read and hard to like decipher like what he's trying to say like you know converting all the w's to r's it reminded me of the the scene from a uh, life of brian with the roman emperor if you guys have seen that
2: i thought you were gonna say the princess bride i feel like i've heard that exact same speech pattern at some point i can <laughs> hear it in my head but like i couldn't i can't quite recall like who which character in what movie <laughs> have i heard who talks like this but um, I was also thinking about like how painstakingly difficult it must have been to write because like that can't be easy.
0: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't have like students to replace for like W or to R to W, right? That time you had to like probably type oh it out God, or write. It.
2: Yeah, but it's not just the uh, that's it's not just like a simple swapping of the Ws, uh, the Rs with Ws. It's just it's yeah. just, he has he has written everything phonetically and. It's just, I, 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 when it slows me down in my reading, I'm like, ah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that we've had like, uh, I think it's called eroticism like the speech impediment with the R's to W's in media before. So it didn't really bother me. And especially when you hear it in a radio play, it's just like very easy. It's like, okay, this is how the character speaks. So it didn't stop me, but sometimes like, if i try and do the reason i can't really read fantasy is because in the first like 30 pages the author is splashing out like all these words that he's made up and like Hmm. of course he's made up elvish and he's made up dwarvish and i need to like sound my way through them and it feels like it's not to any point but since this is just english that's been altered it wasn't wasn't so bad for me but i'll be interested to see if that's like polarizing
2: Talia, are you revealing in this moment that you are not a Lord of the Rings fan? <laughs> um, no because comment. We're, tr- we're treading into some dangerous waters here. All right, cut the microphones.
0: Oh, yeah, man. That, you're, you're ruining season 12 of Rehydrated.
2: <laughs> I was a very big Lord of the Rings nerd. I was reading. Very Book adept. 11. Maria.
1: Maybe you can evangelize to me. We'll see.
2: I had. Well, I mean. In your defense, I had no life when I was eleven, and all I did was read <laughs> Lord of the Rings and then watch the movies because they were coming out around the same time. So, but I also, I may or may not have tried to learn Elvish. So, <laughs> <laughs> just let's well, not I do rehash applaud that. Again.
1: I do applaud any <laughs> linguistic attempt taken to that extreme.
2: I mean, to come up with one's own language is like that's that's the OG um, linguistic genius. So. I
0: don't know. Yeah. Yeah, actually like the Lord of the Rings books, I after I watched the movies, I hadn't read the books, but I, I went back and listened to the audiobooks too. And those are actually good. Those were those were very well done audiobooks, I think. You know, I was able to follow the story because I, yeah, like I said, I hadn't read them, so
2: to be continued on the next yeah. podcast season, which will be Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah.
1: either for next episode. All right, let's get to the spying i guess that folds into the politics that pervade the, the empire
0: yeah i think it's interesting how it's just sort of take it as red that everything is gonna be spied on they had the the spy beams or whatever they're mm-hmm. called and then the the commission actually gets mad that they block the spying <laughs> they're like take away his device and like what are you doing yeah it's uh i think it's just another 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 detail that shows sort of the invasive and that's kind of bloated nature of the empire how everything just everyone just spied on now uh and that even like put on trial for talking bad about the empire you know like Seldon could have been sentenced to death you know presumably by saying you know spreading his ideas that the empire could have been or will fall in in uh in however many in 300 years right
1: yeah, I thought it was very interesting when it's just taken as common knowledge, like, "Oh yeah, Seldon has all these doomsdaying papers," and the PhD is like, "What? I've never read that. I've read all of his works," and they're like scoffing, like, "Well, of course they're not published. Like, yeah. <laughs> those are the ones that we spied on him to see."
0: Yeah, for sure, the late stage empire stuff, I think, is yeah, it, it is just more more of that world building that that shows um, that that lends credence to his. His theory later on that, or his calculation that the empire is going to fall.
1: Right, it's not a theory; it's mathematical perfection. Right,
0: <laughs> his, his psychohistoric thesis. I, I think there's a lot of those instances, or just kind of ideas that the empire is kind of stagnating, and they kind of put it. They kind of sprinkle it through the the whole series or the these whole two parts, right, and kind of seeds it in your mind that that his prediction is probably going to be right or his, his calculations are probably gonna be right. I think I, I kind of try to list a couple of them here. So first, Trantor not being able to support itself with agriculture and not caring about it either, just like importing everything. And Acrion not having nuclear power and probably no one having it. Or even the, it seems like the empire had it, but then they can't figure out how to fix it. Like no one kept up with the knowledge. Uh, Lord Dorwin uh, willing to just read accounts of archaeology instead of actually going himself and experiencing it. The Empire not being able to negotiate an effective treaty with Anacreon. The Empire not being able to fix nuclear reactions or reactors. Um, And finally, Harry Seldon's prediction itself.
2: Another one that came to mind for me uh, just now was um, also the fact that uh, it's revealed at one point in the conversation with Dorwin that um, they have completely, they seem to have forgotten the origins of humanity, like where Mm, yeah. where human beings originated and it's a matter of like um like it's all about like they have guesses as to where human beings originated so it seems like like historical information it has sort of like almost like fallen apart at a at a point like they don't remember right. beyond a certain moment in history
0: yeah i wonder if there was some event where that those records were lost or something and that that's either they don't know or really it's just not caring about the past you know because there's People always say, like, you know, if you don't learn, if you don't learn from the mistakes of the past, you're you're doing to repeat them, right? So right. maybe that's what he's trying to say here. Yeah.
1: So the idea of history as a form of currency, I know they do mention sort of leadingly, like, it's not the only way to pay a bribe, like, there's more than just money. There's obviously, like, a credit system. But I, I thought of history and truth and the predictions being a form of currency that, you know, does circulate this empire.
2: The other thing that this reminds me of, and this this predates Asimov, um and this is like, canon sci-fi that you will read first if you dabble at all in sci-fi, um, <laughs> especially within academia, is uh, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, which kind of um, takes a time traveler into a future era where um, humanity has devolved into two different races. Seemingly, the idea or this the, the hypothesis, I guess, behind why this has happened is that they reached a moment in time where there's basically like a lack of problems to solve. Like we, we as human beings are currently kind of at that point in time where there is no need for like survival of the fittest in a sense, um, for a lot of people in the developed world, because like, if there's a problem, we have the technology to fix it. And that technology is available to most people who can afford it in developed countries. So the upper class individuals or, I guess maybe people who are from developed worlds, you can think um, they no longer kind of need to be resourceful. So over like thousands of years into the future, they just become very physically and mentally weak, while um, downtrodden classes have turned brutal and barbaric. There's a lot of talk I noticed in, in the conversations that happen between characters in this book of barbaric planets. And um, the impending era of chaos that would follow the downfall, which reminded me of the fate of humanity as Wells explores it through the um, de-evolution of humanity. So I think a lot of these ideas are seeded through Asimov's work, which is really fascinating because I read The Time Machine like ages ago, but these ideas are still like imprinted into my mind. So I can't see like why that wouldn't have been a a big influence on, on what's happening in this book so far.
0: Yeah, I haven't read that, but yeah, that's a that's a good point.
2: That's that's the next thing on your reading list, then, Dan. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I have so many things on my reading list, but yeah, <laughs> like the more yeah. and more things like I should have read by now. Like this,
2: this is a classic.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: There's another interesting parallel that I found to um, Remembrance of Earth's Past, which is the question posed to Seldon by the Emperor. Of um why he should care about what happens three hundred years later, when no one alive today will be alive for that future, um, which is an idea that Si explores in so many different like you know people break up into factions of thinking about the trislarin conflict that was very interesting i I can see that like that that question seems to be directly lifted out of this existential dilemma that 's posed right at the beginning of this book, which is that. If something's not going to happen for 300 years, why should we care about about it now? And it's interesting that Selden slash Asimov's answer to this is something called humanity. That's why we care. So I think that was a really nice nice framing of that question and then actually giving an answer to it, which is like, well, we should care for the sake of humanity.
0: Yeah, I wonder if Sushin also thought about it as sort of an, another like the same way here where people because the way i interpret it here is that like they don't care what happens 200 years in the future because they're just lazy and stagnating right like i didn't get that sense from from rumors Earth's past the more that is like selfish and not thinking about the future like the the i think the theme of that book is more like we are too focused in on ourselves and our race won't uh, survive unless we think beyond just the earth but we never do <laughs> like this is like a constant series of like just being short-sighted
2: yeah but also it's interesting because um in remembrance of Earth's past um, ideas like escapism and anything that basically uh leads to a sense of like apathy towards yeah. the like what's going to happen to all of humanity is almost seen as like, I think it's, he depicts it at one point as a crime against humanity. So yeah, so <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of like he is, he is echoing this idea that's presented in this book a little bit at various moments. So yeah, of course, yeah. Since this is all very fresh in my mind. I couldn't help but draw these parallels. Yeah. I think that's a, it's also a
0: good catch there.
1: So if you're looking for an explicit moment in the text where they are considering this question, I found it on page 85 when they were discussing, you know, can we risk the present for the sake of a nebulous future? And not Mm. only is that being risk averse, I also noticed a definite article, like the present is now and we can actually improve it or make it worse, but the future, it's a future. We don't even know if it's coming. And I think that infects a lot of the dialogue around you know what's worth it it's like will we live to see it will our descendants live to see it is this going to benefit an upper class or us so that's where i found it on the discussion i believe between the mayor and the ambassador
0: well i think the next big concept uh, that is the our next big theme that shows up in the the book is the idea of free will And it looks like you guys had a couple of notes around that, so I will let Priya talk about her idea first.
2: I feel like a lot of sci-fi and just literature in general is very fascinated with the idea of free will. This is a little bit beyond the question of whether or not we have free will, but more so about the ultimate importance of free will? Does it have the ability to impact anything? And I think personally for me, the idea of mathematical formulas, because I'm not a mathematical person, (laughs) predicting human behavior with that degree of certainty is Like it's very captivating, but at the same time, very terrifying and um, repugnant in how it reveals that there's actually very little, very little influence of individual free will on the grand scale or on outcomes for that are, you know, big picture outcomes. You know, there are a few other books that I would shout out that really explore the same ideas. Um, Of course, Remembrance of Earth's Past Again. So I think Sishan uh, uh, also explores that idea of like like how much does free will actually configure into a predictable pattern of human behavior that will ultimately lead to a certain outcome no matter what. And then there's another book that I always keep referencing, which I can't wait to meet someone who has read this book because it's <laughs> such an underrated work of sci-fi, but it's brilliant. And it's called A Canticle for Leibowitz, And it explores a post-apocalyptic world in which humanity sort of presses the reset button and then goes back to a primitive medieval type of society, which actually the current stagnating society, the empire and all of that kind of reminds me of that too, because it's almost like when you start to devolve as a society, you kind of go back to these almost like primitive sort of roots in your politics and in your way of understanding science. And so um, in this book, they go back and they form a society that's that predates scientific advancement. Like they bury all their scientific books. They lock them away. No one's allowed to explore science because of course science led to the apocalypse. And, um, it explores the question of whether we would be doomed to arrive at the same disastrous outcome if we could do it all over again. And without giving any more spoilers to that (laughs) book, um, I think it, it, it's very much in line with the idea of like there being almost like a mathematical sort of formula that predicts human behavior
0: yeah i remember us talking about that before and i have i have acquired the ebook but i have not read it yet well so well i will (laughs) yes because i remember yeah you talking about it how yeah how how good it was and how many parallels there were to uh, these are members of past and now it seems like this book too so
2: can you repeat the name one more time A Canticle for Leibowitz by uh, I think it's by Walter Miller is the author's name. Be beware that it reads very differently from a lot of sci-fi, and sometimes it can lose you. But it's it's my type of writing, which is like poetic writing that's like infused with science fiction elements. So Mm -hmm. it was really like up my alley. It might not be up everyone's alley, but the ultimately, like after you read the book, you feel like you're better for having read the book if that makes sense.
1: That's quite an endorsement.
2: Yeah, it's one of my favorites. It's definitely one that I look to in thinking about bigger concepts.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think the idea of just like free will around this series is, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like how the, it, it seems like the kind of broad strokes are yeah, kind of taken as like, this are going to happen no matter like what individual things, but like individual things could maybe influence, but probably with a very low percentage, like if Selden would have been killed, Uh, as far as his trial right like it that probably would have screwed things up um maybe not like maybe like the 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 empire still would have i mean i think no matter what happened to him like the empire still would have fallen it's just like maybe the second the foundation wouldn't have tried to build the second foundation i guess or the second uh, empire uh, according to to calculations
1: priya's comments made me remember you know other works of fiction not necessarily science fiction but you know, grappling with this concept of free will because it's sort of telling that or telling about humanity as a whole, that you could refute something by saying, you know, that's an affront to free will. That reveals that we care about that. And Mm. we think that we're in control of that. Um, So any series that has like a prophecy in it is going to necessarily interact with free will. I thought about His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. And without a spoiler, it's the prophecy about Lyra Belacqua, you know, that she must take this particular course of action without knowing what she must do. And it's foretold that she will have this big, grand betrayal. And what ends up happening uh, is she ends up hearing this prophecy and thinking, oh, I need to act as if I haven't heard it and act as if I don't know this prophecy, but I truly do know And so she thinks that she has full knowledge and thinks she's betrayed someone and then walks blindly into the true betrayal. So she tried to outmaneuver her fate and ended up doing it the same way.
2: I haven't read um, His Dark Materials, and I so regret that because it was um, one of the recommended readings in one of my classes back back in the... In the olden times when I was in college <laughs> and I never read it and I feel like I like missed out on a big It's big still thing. out there yeah. and the author is, is still yeah.
1: alive. I have a signed copy that he signed in twenty nineteen.
2: Yes, that'll have to be added to my list to <laughs> finally get to it.
0: Like was that a did that come out as a TV show or as a movie? I remember movie. hearing about it. Movie. Oh
2: yeah,
1: it did come out as a kind of toothless movie.
0: Oh, really? Uh, yeah, the series
1: yeah. takes on a lot of concepts, not just free will. This is such a tangent, but it takes on um, organized religion, very specifically the Catholic Church. And mm. the church was not ecstatic about that. And I thought of another, an obvious one, but you know, an oldie, but a goodie when we talk about free will is Greek tragedies. So think Oedipus, uh, think Achilles, think Cassandra. Free will in that umbrella of storytelling in that genre is in tension with fate. Um, And in that tradition, fate really is like capital F. They believe it's unalterable and, you know, Oedipus tries to escape his and again, walks right back into what was prophesied to happen. So I think it's interesting to see which side this series will come down on. Like, is it a story about free will? Is it a story about fate? Or you know, we're only in part one. Maybe we don't actually know which story it's going to tell yet.
0: Or, or maybe like it turns into be, you know, something like the Empire does fall and the second Empire comes up, be as the Foundation, but they fall into the same trappings. Something like that. I actually and, don't know. <laughs>
2: and since we since we are in the realm of classic literature now, I can't help but plug my favorite OG work of. Classic literature that explores free will—if that's an idea that's con- that's fascinating to you guys—is um, *Paradise Lost* by John Milton, which I read several times in college and was obsessed with. Um, it's a it's it's written in the form of epic poetry, um, and it explores um, it kind of explores at times like original sin and the fall of Satan through Satan's perspective. And mm. um, it explores the ideas of free will behind the behind Adam and Eve defying God's will and um, what Satan's reasoning is for why he is in rebellion against God and how God knows all of this, but he doesn't do anything to interfere with that free will. Um, and then it also brings up the question of, then is it free will or not? Of course, it's beautifully written because it, it's written by John Milton. So it's beautifully written. Um, that's all I can say. And um, its I think everyone should read it. Oh, Priya, now you definitely have to read his dark materials. I know, I know. I,
1: I, As a Milton reader, you'll get much more out of it. I mean, there's Milton quotes all over. Anyway.
2: <laughs> yes, that—that that, it was in that same class that this book was recommended. So yeah, that makes sense. <laughs>
0: So I know Priya, you talked about the characters themselves being, um, a little bit, there's no, there's no one to really hang on to.
2: Yeah. I'm hoping that, um, <sighs> these names are really, really stumping <laughs> me <laughs> more than I expected. Um, what's his name? Um, Hardin? Hardin. Hardin. Yeah. I'm hoping that Hardin becomes a character that we sort of, um, become fascinated by But sadly, up until this point, I haven't encountered a single character that really piqued my interest. I was hoping actually at the beginning that Gal Dornick would be that character, but he's kind of just, he kind of just fell off the, the story in part two, so yeah
0: because they jump 50 years in the future right yeah
2: yeah. i was hoping that there would be like an old man gal dornick in that 50 year (laughs) future but there was not so
0: um
2: i'm hoping they give us something but it's it's funny because like i think that was a common complaint with a remembrance of earth's past where we were finding like the characters weren't very compelling and then it wasn't until the second book that you kind of got Lo g who was like such a great character so i'm i'm willing to hold on i'm i'm gonna hold off my judgment until i read further
0: (laughs) (laughs) how about you talia did you find any of the characters the compelling or want to hear more
2: again
1: i have also been advised to reserve judgment because i don't think this is a spoiler because like dan mentioned we don't know what's going to happen But we were told or I was told reserve judgment because anyone that you find tedious or is like saying a lot but not actually communicating anything is like representative of the stagnating empire. So Hmm. I do get this sense that like the stuff is right around the corner. And other than that, I think Hardin is the easiest character to follow. So I latched onto him.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's seems uh seems the most competent, right? Like as the other council members are kind of aloof and just like not caring about anything, and all of the the representatives in acreon or Dorwin, they're just also aloof and just only care about power and you know <laughs> keeping that power and not even caring about anything. So yeah, I think the Hardin has like the most easy to latch on personality.
2: Yeah, and I also I think he's he maybe I was wrong. Like maybe he is, he is the character who's compelling because he's, he's kind of like, he doesn't really, he doesn't really care to be diplomatic. He's just kind of, and which is weird because he's, he's a mayor, he's a politician, so he should be diplomatic, but, he kind of just asks the questions that come to his mind. And, and I think, like, the character of... Um, I'm really thankful to you, by the way, for putting a character list in the notes because I keep going back to it to, like, <laughs> remember their names. Peren, his, his character's whole purpose seems to just express shock at what um, Hardin has just said or asked of someone. You're, that, that's your clue that, oh, like, he shouldn't be saying stuff like that, but he is, so... I'm interested to see where he goes from there.
1: I think Hardin is the most, like you said, confident, the most self-assured. Like, I think there's that scene in his office where he, like, flicks and is like, look at the motto, look at the board. And he has, like, you know, this moment where all the other characters, they know, yeah, this is Hardin's thing. He says, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. So he's mm, very comfortable yeah. in his own, you know, outlook and his own morals. So it's easy to get comfortable.
0: Yeah, that was, a, that was a great quote. Mm-hmm.
2: I just hope they don't drop him. Like, <laughs> they dropped, like, all a bunch of other characters so far.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I guess what are the things that you're looking for, uh, you know, going forward in this series? Like, do you have any predictions of where it's going to go? Like, I, I'm i going to hold off because I, I, I know a little bit more because I know about the, this book, but I'm going to... Since you guys have only read up to this point, what do you guys? Uh, what oh, do you guys yeah. hope that you we see? We have
1: the experience of being on the main show, where yeah, you know everything, <laughs> and we're just guessing.
0: But like I said, I listened to it and kind of, kind of zoning out a lot of times, so I forgot a lot of stuff that happens. But I know the broad strokes of what happens in the first book.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know what's obvious as hell where we left off, hmm. so I don't really have very many guesses as to what it is because it is like what we've seen up to this point is very political in nature so it seems like almost like it could go any way i i don't really have any guesses
1: i'm so glad you brought that up the obvious as hell i thought that was so cheeky
2: yeah it is very cheeky
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that you're meant to know what that means. Uh, like, he gets it and he's like, ah, oh, it's so obvious, like, what I need to do. But I don't think that as a reader, because we don't know enough information at this point to know That's the know moment on the obvious. TV
1: show where one character brings everyone into a huddle and the camera pans right. away.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's going to be, um, it's a nice cliffhanger to end this episode on, um, or this, like, you know, this reading section on but i i i do feel by this point in the book i do feel like i'm drawn in so i feel like the the next portion of the reading is going to be pretty interesting
0: yeah, I mean, and just overall, this book is pretty short. Like this, you know, the I, when I broke up the reading list, like this particular book is only three episodes because each se- it's like around 70 pages or so. So we're going to find out, like you know, the middle part of the book is, you know, where probably a lot of stuff happens, right? So yeah, we'll, we'll know pretty quickly. Unlike, remember, for the past where we had, you know, 10 episodes <laughs> or something to figure out and kind of, there was a little bit of wheel spinning at that time. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of wheel spinning in, in this series just because it's so sh- short and compact.
2: Yeah. And one thing that I would say um, towards the end of this is that um, if people are finding themselves to be um, fans of Asimov and are enjoying this, I would strongly recommend reading iRobot. It reads it reads quite differently from this, actually, but it's mm. very endearing and it's quite different. I, I don't think I've seen the movie, the, the movie with Will Smith. Is that the one? Uh, I
0: think so. Um, I haven't seen it either.
2: But the book is very different. I think the movie has just lifted certain ideas and elements from the the book, but it's not the book at all. So um don't if you hated the movie, then don't let that be a deterrent to reading the book because the book is something entirely different. And I, I love I love sci-fi that explores AI, so that that's that's recommended reading in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and as far as my understanding, like that. That that book or that series is like directly in the same timeline as this one. It just happened. It's like the first part of this timeline because I think, as far as I understand, that happens kind of modern-ish day, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So like, I think that when I looked at like the the timeline of books, like that was like the first one, and then like the other robot series books happened, and then you know the Foundation books happened somewhere in the middle. I think there's some other ones after that.
2: Yeah, it's I think it's a really great intro to Asimov, too, for someone who's just getting into Asimov, because it's it's very readable, very um, it's it's if I remember correctly, because I read this more than 10 years ago, it's written as a collection of short stories. Almost. It's it's a very fascinating read and it's endearing and it's very emotional. And yeah, you wouldn't expect certain things that you come across in that book, but you do. And it's it's lovely. <laughs>
0: Well, if we turn into a a fully eyes them off podcast, maybe you yeah, know season twenty five or whatever we'll get to it.
2: Yeah, I think I think what's co- I feel like what's compelling us to talk about all these other other works of sci fi tangentially to what we're supposed to be talking about in this podcast is because I feel like Foundation sort of feels like a foundation for a lot of other sci fi ideas that came after it. So for sure. Um, so yeah, it's always like, I, I can always find myself connecting the dots to other books that I've read that have similar concepts and ideas.
0: Cool. Uh, Talia, do you have anything that you're looking forward to?
2: No, you guys
1: pretty much took it all. That's, I agree. Co-sign.
0: Thank you very much for listening. Please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes, reading lists, pronunciation guides, and all the other information that we put up on there. Leave us comments by emailing us at rehydrate.fastmail.com or on twitter at rehydrate pod again we're all newbies to this series so any information that's not spoilery send it our way and we're happy to digest it and think about it in the context of our reading and please join us next episode for season six episode two the mayors and the traitors covering part three and part four of foundation by isaac asimov